0: Welcome to the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast. This series discusses the big issues in financial services, providing market and legal insight into the latest trends and challenges in the sector.
1: Hello and welcome to our discussion today by the DLA Piper team on collaboration and corporate venturing in the financial services industry. I'm Anthony Day, and I'm the International Head of Fintech at DLA Piper, and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, Chris Arnold and Michael Heen. Chris and Michael, if you want to introduce yourselves.
0: Great. Um, Thanks, Anthony. So I'm Chris Arnold, a London-based corporate partner with a specific focus on the financial services sector, and together with Michael,
2: I'm the co-head of the firm's financial services M&A subgroup. So, hi Anthony, hi Chris, I'm indeed uh, Michael Hene. I'm a Brussels-based corporate M&A partner uh, and focusing on uh, regulated sectors including financial services, so that is uh, what, what sparked my interest in, in financial services M&A, financial services collaboration um, and investments uh, by financial institutions in fintechs, so that's, uh, that's my
1: practice. Thanks guys. Now, it's fair to say that the financial services sector, particularly retail banking, has seen some seismic shifts recently. There is already an acceleration to digital taking place, but Covid has really heightened that, um, particularly with many banks losing branch networks and health concerns related to Covid in relation to people using cash has dramatically reduced the amount of cash transactions that we're seeing in the market. There's also been a number of structural reforms and regulatory change, which is driving innovation and competition, mean that we're seeing business models changing and a much greater wave of collaboration across the industry. So my first question to you, Chris, Recognizing all this change and innovation that we're seeing in the market at the moment, does this mean the end of traditional retail banks? Um, uh, well, I think it certainly means the end for
0: traditional retail banks' sort of historic business model of. Solely relying on a large branch network, and and they've had to embrace and and have indeed embraced change, and 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 have had to redefine their business models. Technology obviously taken on a ever increasing importance, and these traditional banks have faced increased competition from fintechs and other new entrants to the market who don't have the the costly overheads that the traditional banks have with maintaining these large branch networks. Um, all of that said though, uh, I don't think it is the end for traditional retail banks. I think they've still got a very important role to play in the sector. They've obviously got access to huge amounts of personal data and there's an ability to monetize and leverage that. Although, of course, they do need to be very careful to ensure that they're complying with with data protection law if they if they do look to leverage that. And there's also a very strong brand recognition and, and actually an improved public perception of the, the sort of high street retail banks due to the role that they've played in supporting businesses through the pandemic. and, and I think that's gone some way to sort of repairing the, the, the stigma and the perception that was was given to banks as a result of the financial crisis sort of 10 years or so ago. Um, and I think this improved public perception and brand recognition will give them the opportunity to collaborate outside of the, of the sector and, and look to expand into other products and markets. And there's also an opportunity for them, as we've talked about, or as we've mentioned, that their business model has had to change. they need new technology and, and, and Fintechs are disrupting the, the space. Um, there may be opportunities for them to acquire Fintechs or indeed invest in them, if the fintechs are in need of capital and cannot obtain it from from other sources at the moment and that will obviously help accelerate the the technological change within the within the retail banks
2: i fully agree with that chris and anthony i think i think the traditional model of traditional retail banks is is probably under attack and severely under attack but i think there's there's definitely a lot of opportunity out there uh, just like chris said you've got Retail banks with huge uh, customer bases, they can leverage. They've got branch networks, they've got branches everywhere in the, in the smallest little villages. And they need to be looking at opening that up. So that, I think, is, the, is their opportunity, leveraging that client base, leveraging that data, uh, leveraging that access to the customer. And I think as well, Chris, is actually they've got great lawyers. And I think that is, as a lawyer, a great thing to see because the, the whole regulatory framework is not to be underestimated. Also for fintechs, for example, they struggle with that stuff. And if they need to roll out under, under re- regulatory framework, it's not always that easy. And banks, I think, with their large legal departments and their large compliance departments and their KYC, et cetera, they're very well placed to actually play a a very active role also in the future in this in this regulated environment.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right, Michael. And, and actually, I mean, on some of the deals I've acted on, where um, sort of traditional players have have made an investment in fintech, so you can almost see the the weight lifted off the, the, the founder's shoulders within the FinTech, that that compliance burden has, has, has sort of been um, eased by being able to rely upon the expertise of, of the financial institution. So yeah, I, I fully agree.
2: And, and that's what banks are great at. I mean, they've got the structure, they've got the people to actually really roll out large projects, uh, including in IT. And I think that's 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 something to be aware of uh, for them as an, and see that as an opportunity.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, building on on this theme, one of the points that you mentioned, Chris, was banks have got an opportunity to kind of redefine their business models. Um, and I think, Michael, recognising that banks do have a lot of legacy, they have got large teams that they need to work with as well, but they've got this opportunity to redefine their business models. Surely this is going to be a a kind of really complex, time-consuming and difficult process for them. What are your thoughts around how banks can redefine their business models and take advantage of some of the market changes that we're seeing? It's a really interesting
2: time, I think, for banks. And indeed, it is a complex and probably time-consuming process, but it's also a time to reinvent yourself as a bank, as a a traditional retail bank, and I think that is is actually quite exciting. And we do see a number of our clients looking into new lines of business, um, really building on that client base, um, be it in mobility services, IT services, payment services. Uh, and really really building on that and actually selling those new services to their clients is that an easy exercise no it's it's clearly not an easy exercise it's an exercise which uh, requires new reflexes they need to be looking at new types of players they also need to collaborate i think and and that's also an interesting wave we're seeing we're seeing on the one hand we're seeing open banking initiatives whereby They're just opening up their branch network and trying to sell all kinds of additional stuff. They're trying to develop their apps in order to uh, sell stuff through their apps. In Belgium, for example, we've got the initiative whereby um, KBC Bank is opening up its app uh, in order to sell all kinds of products through its app and really becoming a primary sales channel when you're online on your iPhone and and they are actually making good use of of, of their brand recognition in the Belgian market to do that but we're also seeing collaborations between banks you've got uh, you've got various initiatives throughout Europe and I'm sure throughout other other parts of the world whereby banks are really collaborating together, building new technology in order to defend themselves against the Googles and the Apples, uh, etc., and the Facebooks of this world.
0: I think that's right, Marco. I mean, I think the it, it's a really exciting period. And if you look back sort of 10 years or so ago, the, the sort of traditional banks were, was, were still sort of stuck with their historic business model and, and didn't really have too much interest in changing um, whereas now there's lots of development and they've got big teams looking at, at the technology that they can offer they're making investments in fintech. they're so acquiring fintech. so it is just a really exciting time for the sector I think.
1: Yeah absolutely and I think it's one of those things where you have to redefine business models you've got to move with the new digital era and actually there's kind of a lot that can be learned from partnering with the fintechs and following some of the the style and approach and and kind of sort of fresh dynamism that they also offer in the market so that that certainly kind of helping that wave of of collaboration that we're seeing. And Chris, just pivoting a second and kind of looking a little more deeply into um, this area, particularly when you'll say a bank looking to invest or uh, acquire a particular fintech, what are the main focus areas that you should be looking out for um, what are kind of the the key hot topics that you need to think about, particularly when you're diligencing these sorts of businesses?
0: Yeah, thanks, Anthony. And I mean, I think the the most important diligence point and something which the traditional banks will be fully focused on and, and, and will be something which there is front and centre of mind is the regulatory position of the fintech. So is the fintech regulated in all of the jurisdictions and has all of the authorizations it needs everywhere that it operates. Um, and given the sort of evolving regulatory framework and the, and the fast moving sector, um, it's not always a black and white answer as, as to whether that they are correctly regulated. Um, and I think it's fair to say that a traditional financial institution with with a, a sort of a, a big regulatory footprint um, and, and big compliance teams is likely to be a lot more conservative, quite rightly, because it will be a bigger focus for the regulators than a fintech who may have taken a risk-based decision that actually we don't need to be regulated um, at at this stage. So uh, focusing on that regulatory aspect is very important and the traditional financial institution needs to sort of assess whether... (sighs) that regulatory position is going to continue under its ownership or following its investment or whether actually it believes it should be regulated. And so either it needs to go for authorization or indeed it needs to stop doing a particular line of business for a, for a period or, or, or in a specific market. And then moving on from that in a, in a sort of related way, it's also if the business isn't currently regulated, do the, is it likely that in time... The fintech will need to be regulated either as uh, regulators sort of expand their, their their sort of scope into the area or or where the fintech is is growing um is expanding overseas or expanding into new markets um will it need to be regulated then and if so what does that mean for the fintech fintech's ability to operate in the way that has been a success so far um so it's it it's a really interesting area and i think there's there's a You have to be careful as a, as a financial institution that you are investing or acquiring this fintech because it's disruptive, because it's different, because it's new. And you need to ensure that your sort of regulatory compliance burden that you place upon the fintech doesn't stifle that growth as it um, joins the group. But again, you obviously need to protect your regulatory position.
2: Yeah, and it's it's still an important point, of course. I mean, it's it's regulatory. It's regulatory, the, the licenses that, that may be required. But it's rightly, as you say, Chris, it's, it's regulatory compliance is, is key as well. Eh? So it's everything which has to do with you know your customer, AML. I mean, we often see fintechs that are just doing business. Like Chris says, they're just doing business. They're going out there. They're conquering the market. But once you actually start looking at the client intake processes, they're not up to standard so that's definitely something you you need to assess and I think there's a couple of things you need to you need to bear in mind there you need to first of all properly assess what systems you will need to be putting in place once you've taken over the fintech but on the other hand just did a deal uh, a deal that actually didn't go through last week whereby you see that the the fintech had actually taken on a whole bunch of clients, and the bank was really interested in actually acquiring those clients in order to be able to cross sell other services, because that's of course the key idea you have when when you're buying these these FinTech businesses, you want access to new clients, uh, young clients, uh, clients that are other than your typical clients. But then if you start diligencing those clients, you see that they came through the KYC, the AML, which was very light at the level of the FinTech, and that you're actually not interested, that there are uh, cab drivers and casinos and restaurant businesses, which there's not that much cross-selling to be done. So I think it's not just the regulatory, it's also the business angle of that regulatory and KYC and AML angle. I think that's, that's a very important aspect. A second point, Chris, I think is data. Um, the, the way fintechs are, are dealing with data, even though they're in technology, often is sometimes not that strong. And again, what what banks try to do is is get their hands on the data and actually work together with the, the fintech to actually, again, cross-sell. But if you cannot use the data of the fintech, then there's not that much value in the fintech. So we've seen a couple of deals uh, going through some difficulty in the diligence phase on the whole compliance with data protection um, framework. And, and as we talked about, earlier michael i mean
0: obviously banks have very sophisticated compliance teams um and and actually as you're going through the diligence exercise you sometimes find that the fintechs are fully aware of their deficiencies um from a compliance perspective um and 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 actually are really pleased that they will get the benefit of the bank's compliance function post deal so it's not always uh, uh, the bank sort of explaining to the fintech why this just doesn't work and why you're going to have to change. Sometimes it's just the fintech actually being relieved that it will be, they'll have someone to help them.
2: Indeed, and it's it's a very complex area, and especially if you if you want to go out there as a fintech and and you want to roll out in various in various countries, it could be very helpful if you have uh, an an internationally active bank uh as as your partner, be it if they if they invested in you or or even just purely on the basis of a commercial collaboration, that could really be a strong asset for a, for a fintech and a, and I think retails banks should banks should bear that in mind that they can actually bring that regulatory expertise to the table when they're discussing with these uh, with these guys.
1: Yeah, I, I guess you've got the kind of the naughty teenager analogy, haven't you? You've you've got the fintech that is ambitious and the world is their oyster in terms of growth plans. Um, they perhaps are running out of money and and need their parents to, to bail them out or put more money in. And equally they may have a kind of a, a different or or less mature approach to, to data and compliance. So that's that's certainly something that we see in terms of kind of fintechs moving up that that maturity curve as they collaborate with the larger banks. Chris, I know that we've recently launched a white paper looking and exploring some of these themes. I don't know if you wanted to mention a little bit more about that white paper. And then also building on from that, what would be good is to tease out some of the kind of the really key topics or more thorny negotiation areas that you often have to address when dealing with these types of fintech investments and and acquisitions?
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, as you say, so we've we've launched our sort of thought leadership piece or, or white paper on collaboration and corporate venturing in the FS sector. It's available on our website and, and covers sort of some similar themes to, to what we're discussing today. So if you find this conversation interesting, then please do look at that. It's available. And and, and Michael, I, I don't know if you want to take us through the key negotiation areas.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think if, if you're negotiating, and, and I think we need to make a bit of a, a separation between indeed negotiating with fintechs and, and acquiring fintechs and The other item we discuss in our white paper being collaboration between banks and consortium forming. I think that's that's totally different negotiations, of course. But if you look at investing in fintechs, I think as a retail bank, you need to decide on your strategy. You need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And um, I think that is a, it, it sounds maybe like a, an open door uh, but but it's it's important are you going in the market in order to just acquire everything which has to do with a certain technology or product that's that's a possibility and then you could buy three or five fintechs which are all doing more or less the same thing and you hope that you're actually gonna buy the whole market so i think that's probably a very difficult strategy which will cost you a lot of money um but you could do it differently as well. You can, you can, again, focus on the commercial contract which you will put in place with that fintech. Will that fintech in your open banking strategy uh, provide you with a service or a technology that you can actually leverage towards your own clients? And if that is what you need, maybe you should focus on that first and see why are you actually investing in the equity of a fintech? Uh, because that will be important for the fintech. You, you, they will, they will of course value your branch network, your brand recognition, your expertise, your regulatory expertise. But maybe they don't want you fully in their equity. So I think one of the key things you already need to think about is: Am I taking a hundred percent of this fintech? Am I buying out the founders? Am I taking a majority stake, but I'm keeping the team in? Uh, am I incentivizing uh, the other members of the management team? Or am I taking a minority participation? Am I taking 10%, 15% just to sniff out the different players in the market? I'm in various fintechs, in various players, and I'm actually building my ecosystem. And I'm, I'm actually, within my ecosystem, uh, creating a transfer of data, a sharing of data, a sharing of the brand, a sharing of the technology, but what is your game? And I think that is, Chris and Anthony, I think that's that's a very important first step because it will define how you, how you go into these discussions with these founders. They have uh, aspirations. Maybe they want to cash, but maybe they also want to expand abroad. And they want to expand in jurisdictions where you as a retail bank are not. And how do you deal with that? How do you deal with their funding rounds? Because a lot of these people, of course, they're they're not necessarily looking at this as I'm just going to sell for, I don't know, five million pounds, five million euro, and I'm I'm wealthy, I can buy a big car. No, often a lot of these people are incentivized by the big ticket and they want to do an IPO. They want to Sell for loads of money, and and that is that is an important aspect. Uh, will you, as a retail bank, actually be blocking them in those aspirations?
0: Yeah, and no, I think I think that's totally right. I mean, it's at the outset you need to understand, and both parties need to be clear what they're expecting in the long term from the fintech. So, as you say, the founders are likely to want to try and grow and grow and grow and have a bigger exit event down the line. Um, if if this is a is not a 100% acquisition, the financial institution may be looking at this as a sort of almost a defensive acquisition or something which is a, or investment which is which is something where they are looking to take the benefit of the products provided by the fintech and prevent their competitors Benefiting from that, and if if there's that fundamental disagreement at the outset as to as to what the long term position is going to be, uh, the relationship is just going to fail. I mean, you need to be open, you need to be honest, and and if the the financial institution is wanting to just use the product for itself, then it possibly moves to needing to be categorised as a hundred percent acquisition at a mutually agreeable price to everyone. The issue that the financial institution then has is do we need the founders or the management team to continue in the business post, post that acquisition? And if so, how do we incentivize them to, to remain involved and to, to do what they need to do for, for the fintech to be a success within the financial institution? And that could be achieved through looking at some form of, of earnout or employment bonus, which is linked to certain milestones within the the use of the, the fintech's product within the within the financial institution. Um, if you're in a position where actually as a financial institution you are willing for the, the and, and you're happy and you're looking at the long-term growth of the fintech and you and you're you're also happy to have the product be sold to competitors and to other third parties then then that's a scenario where it, it could be a, a minority acquisition, it could be a majority acquisition, or it could be a 100% acquisition. Um, And I think in that case, it's then interesting to have the discussion as to whether if it's a minority or majority acquisition, sorry, investment, is that investment a path to get full ownership by the financial institution? And if so, do you need to have put and call mechanics whereby... After three years, five years, a defined time period, there is an obligation on the financial institution to acquire the remaining stake in agreed methodology.
2: Exactly. I mean, I think a key question you have to ask is: Do you want to integrate this business into the bank or not? Do you do you allow it to stay standalone and 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 grow independent of you, and you actually? hop along the right of the fintech. And actually, if the fintech gets sold to another party at some point down the road, you actually make, you've had a great partnership for a couple of years, you've learned a lot, plus on top of that, you're actually making nice money on your corporate venture capital investment. That is, that is one part of the strategy. The other st- part of the strategy is, do I want to integrate this? Is this such an important technology that I want to integrate it and it needs to be my own? And then I think you need to be aware that, that you're gonna pay more because these, these people, they know in what kind of market they are, there's also lots of private equity investment and, and also lots of private equity interest in, in tech businesses. I think if we look at COVID, I mean, tech is is one of those areas which actually did really well in the M&A sphere uh, during the COVID period. So these people know that and it's a different way of incentivizing your team. If you're, for example, going for um, a potential exit down the line, so i.e. a sale to a third party, you actually need to. Um, you can still incentivize the management team with with uh, with warrant schemes, for example, whereby they can get shares at some point and actually hope that they will be able to sell them for lots of money at down the line. And that is that is a dis- discussion. In all honesty, you need to have upfront, and you actually need to have done the thinking of up uh, upfront. And you see certain banks that really have a strategy of corporate venture capital. Uh, whereby they really invest in all kinds of fintechs, but they don't take majority stakes. And that is, that I think is a clever strategy because they know that they can actually learn a lot from these fintechs. They can teach a lot to these fintechs, but they they respect the, indefe- the independence of the fintechs. And I think that is, that is a very valuable route of, 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 of approaching this whole theme in my view, Chris.
0: Yeah, I th- I think that's right, and I think I think we should also just touch on earnouts quickly as well, because I think there's there's uh, people I think sometimes see these as a as a bit of a silver bullet um, to to sort of get over valuation gaps and then reward um, founders for f- future growth in the business by giving sort of subsequent earnout payments if various thresholds are met two three years after after an acquisition, and and so they can be used on hundred percent acquisitions to bridge that valuation gap but um i don't know your experience michael but on every deal which i've been involved in where there's been an earnout, they've been hideously complex to negotiate and agree they cause real issues lead to delays in integration etc
2: yeah and you can always find a way of, of of cheating in in my view afterwards and it's it's very simple things by I mean as soon as you have control over a company I mean earnouts typically will will be linked to EBITDA will be linked to will be linked to turnover but if I have control over a company and I've got other companies within my within my uh well not even ecosystem but that i own you can actually move turnover towards the 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 the, the acquired company or move away from the acquired company depending on where you are in your net periods and you do see quite a lot of um quite a lot of these discussions uh if if you're if you're faced with with earnouts i do think that that probably tech entrepreneurs will feel a bit more comfortable am i feeling would actually be that banks would typically not be the sneakiest in these discussions. So I think there's other there's other parties that would actually be be a bit more uh well be, be playing these earnout clauses a bit a bit in a in a, in a in in a sneakier way. So I think you're probably. Um, talking to a, a quite an honest segment of the of the buyer market, if you're if you're if you're discussing an earnout with a financial institution, but still, it's it's not easy, I think, to uh, to put in place. You see it a lot, especially with with things where there's lots of insecurity of how fast things will grow, and 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 which which is typical in tech businesses. Uh, but it's 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 very difficult to manage, in my in my view.
0: Yeah, and and you also see where there are earnouts that quite understandably that the sellers will then be focusing on hitting those thresholds exactly. and hitting the targets exactly. yeah. so they're focused on short to mid-term growth which may not actually be in the best long-term interest of the business so there's that misalignment of interest again
1: thanks michael and chris um a really interesting exploration of the issues yet there two themes actually that i think come out of that um one is the kind of the sort of emotional piece of dealing with founders. I think that kind of emotional factor seems to be a big part of, of how you kind of structure the discussions and the negotiations here. And then also the second piece, kind of always have your eye on the exit. What's gonna be the exit strategy? What's going to be the kind of the end result with with these particular investments? I think that's that's very sage advice just wrapping things up now um, a couple of final quick fire questions one for you each um one for you Michael what's the the most exciting slice of the market that you see in terms of fintech collaboration where where's um, where's it happening for you right now
2: what i'm really interested in as well is not just the collaboration with the fintech i must say that what i'm also really really interested in is the collaboration between the financial institutions themselves and you see a lot of these uh, a lot of these collaborations whereby they actually develop new technology uh, themselves i've been lucky enough to to work on a on a number of these large consortia projects um, whereby you've got nine twelve banks actually Teaming up, and it's a bit the the the, the visa model. Uh, but then for uh, for other types, you've got Payconic, you've got WeTrade, for example, and and you've got you've got a few others. Uh, where where banks are actually teaming up and building new technology themselves in collaboration with large tech players. Uh, so, for example, with WeTrade consortium, you've seen a collaboration between. 13 banks in the eurozone uh, with IBM building a new blockchain a trade finance application i think that's that's just very interesting stuff because it brings it all together and then you can really build that ecosystem and it becomes really a, a large european ecosystem which is uh, which is quite exciting and we've been uh, lucky enough to be uh, to be able to work on a couple of those so uh, so that that i hope to continue and then i hope to continue Indeed, uh, advising on fintechs, it's a different on acquisitions of fintechs. It's a different uh, psychological game. It's um, it's uh, and there's a lot of psychology there. uh, But I think the combination is uh, is quite exciting.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Michael. And over to you, Chris, for your final thought on the most exciting area right now. Yeah, I
0: mean, I think it's it's similar to Michael. I mean, I think it's the collaboration is 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 really interesting between t- between banks and 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 seeing them all sort of look to explore other avenues um, and 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 equally collaboration between banks and and participants in other sectors. So so banks expanding or financial institutions expanding into into other product markets um, and 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 I think it's. It's also just interesting as well. And I think it will be intriguing to see how the pandemic impacts sort of founders exit plans and, and, and everything else in the fintech businesses. And whether we will see an increase in, in, in acquisitions and investments by financial institutions as a result. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting times.
1: This brings us to the end of this episode. I'm Anthony Day. My thanks to Chris Arnold and Michael Heen. And we hope that you found the discussion informative. If you'd like more detail on any of the areas covered today, please go to dlapiper.com to read our report on collaboration in financial services or feel free to get in touch with any of us.
0: Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. If you'd like to hear more of the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast series, subscribe now through your usual podcast app.